Hello and welcome to Combo Chain, a JRPG Games Club podcast. In this episode, we're covering Nino Kuni, Wrath of the White Witch. That's <laughs> say, say that five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Paul M. Davis. And I'm Elisa James. Hello, Lisa. Hey, how's everything? It's good. It's good. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Cool. Well, like, what's your whole, what's your backstory with this game? So for me, I actually I originally did play this game for the PS3 when it first came out, and I liked it enough. It was a nice, very cute game, very beautiful visuals. And then I also ended up reviewing the remastered that came for like PS4, Switch, and PC, I believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I did a massive review on that, like top to bottom. Basically, from what I gathered with that port is that if you didn't have the game before, it's a pretty good one to buy. But if you already had a copy, I couldn't really find a reason to recommend it because there was very little upgrades to the title. There was some, some options for like boosting like resolution or like frame rate, stuff like that. So like the game looks a lot crisper and cleaner in the port but there's no like added content like there's no other like changes obviously the localization was fine so they didn't have to fix that so but but yeah otherwise i I always found it to be a nice solid game like not the greatest but definitely a very fun time yeah that's yeah you're 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 falling falling exactly where i am too i I I picked up a PS3 like probably near the end of the cycle and was just like after I'd already bought a PS4 and was just picking up like every JRPG at the time because they were all 10 bucks. That makes sense. Yeah. And this one I was particularly interested in because of the Ghibli association and whatnot though i i had a hard time getting through the game on the ps3 like it just didn't didn't really hold my interest and i just it just felt like really kind of rote in in a lot of ways and then when it came to the switch i was like it's been years i really need a jrpg for my switch i'll pick it up and i played through it all the way on the switch and i enjoyed it i enjoyed it quite a bit but i think you've got to just kind of take it for what it is and it's not reinventing a wheel and it's not going to like blow you away exactly, um, exactly. it's a good solid jrpg mm-hmm. exactly yeah that's pretty much it like I, I know like the big hype when it first came out was that it was like oh this is like collaboration with level five studio ghibli and it's like not really like it has the visuals and oversight but it's it's a pretty regular like jrpg there's nothing particularly like extraordinary about it and i think if you kind of come in with those expectations you're gonna be like a bit disappointed yeah, definitely, definitely, and knowing what I know about Ghibli now, yeah, it's not like <laughs> you're not you're not getting Miyazaki on a project like this. You're not even getting 
I can't remember the name of the other guy. What's the name of the other guy who know, makes the good was, Ghibli films? Films also eat Sao. Yeah. Shoot his last name, but it escapes me. But yes, you're not getting the the big guys. On yeah, this, basically. <laughs> yeah, you're you're definitely getting the B B or C team. <laughs> exactly. Though the animation is beautiful in it. Yeah, of course. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah, should we jump into the development of the game? Absolutely. All right. So, yeah, I'm just going to say Nino Kuni through the rest of this because Wrath of the White Witch is a tongue twister. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was released for the PS3 in Japan in November 2011 and in the West in January 2013. And as we mentioned before, it's been re-released in a remastered version for the Switch, PS4, and Windows, and who knows what they really remastered? Like they bump it up from 720 to 1080p or something. Yeah, pretty probably. much. Yeah. Yeah. So interestingly, and I don't know if you have any history with this, but the game is actually a significantly enhanced version of Nino Kuni: Dominion of the Dark Jin, which was originally released for for the Nintendo DS in Japan in December 2010. I don't know. Have you had a chance? try that out or i guess it wasn't really localized so yeah i never actually played it it was funny because when i was writing the review and i was doing a bit of research i ended up finding that out and i was kind of like oh that's really interesting actually and like no one actually kind of talks about it or mentions it in any way and it's kind of it was kind of weird i was like oh wow (laughs) but yeah unfortunately never got a chance to actually play that version it does kind of, I mean, I have, having not played that version, I'm, I'm kind of talking out of my ass here, but it might explain some of the game's issues or limitations in a way. Because when I think of the overworld, I felt I, I found kind of traversing the overworld to be kind of a really tedious process in a lot of cases. <laughs> and it does feel like a DS ass RPG overworld. And it does, actually. Yeah, <laughs> just kind of, I don't know, <laughs> just kind of sparse and there's not a lot going on there other than random encounters. So yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting that it started out that way. The game was developed in collaboration with the Studio Ghibli by Level 5, which is an RPG studio. They're best known pretty much for PS2 era classics like Dark Cloud, Dragon Quest VIII, and Rogue Galaxy. More recently, they've been putting out a bunch of Inazuma 11 games and uh, mobile ports of Professor Layton games. Yeah. But uh, they also did a Nino Nuke. Nino Kuni 2, which I actually think is a really excellent game, but we may get a chance to talk about that a bit later yeah yeah and of course level five also not only the mobile ports but they did the professor layton series in general and they also did yokai watch right yeah so i mean that's like (laughs) that was the title at one point that was like overthrowing pokemon in japan so (laughs) i always forget yeah i never i never really got caught on over here so i always forget about it it didn't at all. It was kind of it was kind of sad to see that. And I was yeah. like, ooh. <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of like yeah. oh, they did Fantasy Life. Also, it seemed like they really wanted Fantasy Life to be much bigger in the U.S. than it ended up being. 
I know. As well. And I actually played I actually reviewed that game and I loved it. It was such a good game. And it I was really it sad. Yeah, and it was just sad that it didn't catch on like that. It was really good. Yeah, it's it's really strange why it didn't why it didn't I mean it seemed like the perfect three DS RPG Life Sim, yeah. Yeah, Life Sim. It's kind of surprising it didn't get bigger. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think level five, you could say that when their heart is really into it, they can make some really great games, but they can also just turn out some very, very kind of middle of the road cash paycheck games mm-hmm. as well. They, they also have a penchant for killing their own franchises with like mm-hmm. hyper saturation, aka Professor Layton and Yokai Watch. <laughs> Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. <laughs> While also dropping, uh, completely dropping other franchises. So. I know. Ugh. So yeah, this was made in the pre-CG era of Studio Ghibli. I'm sure Miyazaki was very opposed to it. <laughs> 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 Just on principle, because... <laughs> Being digitally animated, he famously despised until, I don't know, a couple years ago. Yeah, pretty Um, much. (laughs) And now he's made a CG movie of his own. But yeah, just the fact that they were involved ignited a ton of hype. But in reality, their involvement was pretty limited. There's roughly only about 15 minutes of original cutscene animation that was done by Ghibli. But it's not like they weren't comp- they were uninvolved. Otherwise, they mostly served like an advisory role on the story and general art design. But when it came to the non-cutscene animation, art assets, and whatnot, all that was handled by Level Five. Yeah, yeah, and also kind of like the details of the story. I think they advised on the kind of like major beats of the story, but kind of like filling in the characters and the world and all that was handled in-house by Level 5. So the game was originally conceived to celebrate Level 5's 10-year anniversary, which was in 2008. And the story was meant to resonate with the imaginary words of children, which is a phrase that sounds like it was very, very awkwardly uh, localized. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it was uh, conceived of before Lee's involvement, even though there's like an obvious thematic fit between the story of this game and Ghibli's own works. And the collaboration began with musician Naoya Fujimaki, who had previously worked with both companies, introduced Level 5 president Akihiro Hino to Studio Ghibli president Toshio Suzuki. The development team constantly watched Studio Ghibli's films during development, which is clear from the the heavy influence. And game director Ken Motomura worked with Studio Ghibli in the sense that they reviewed assets, while Hino worked with the studio on the game dialogue and animated sequences so well we'll get to this in the story but i think that something that i've been noticing in media recently is that sometimes when you've got a very (laughs) when you've got a collaboration between a very powerful media entity and a somewhat less powerful media entity and the less powerful media entity is doing most of the grunt work on like storytelling and whatnot. 
Mm-hmm. But the more powerful media entity has kind of veto power on it. Um, yeah. Sometimes you end up with these very kind of like rote stories. And I, there's a lot of charm to the story, but there's also elements of it that are very rote. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I've been thinking about that. <laughs> My daughter is obsessed with Frozen. And so we've been reading all of these like Frozen spinoff books. And the stories are so clearly like, we don't want to go outside of canon. We don't want to offend Disney. And so you get these stories that are like just really, really inert. Yeah, just bland. It's funny that you mentioned Frozen because, I mean, it's basically why you, you like it's the worst world in Kingdom Hearts 3 because Disney was so oppressive over it that they could not deviate from the movie at oh, all. Yeah. So it's like so it's just, you're literally just playing the movie, and it's just like a complete snore fest. It's like okay, like who cares? <laughs> and let me tell you, as somebody who's watched all the Frozen content numerous times, there's not a whole lot of it. It's not. So it's like <laughs> there's, not, there's not there's not like a grand Frozen cinematic universe, at least yet. Exactly. Like, two <laughs> movies. And a couple of shorts, and- basically. <laughs> so, so yeah, it is. It it is funny when that that kind of happens. So I think, like you said, like noticing that trend, I get sort of apprehensive when I see collabs like that because then I'm wondering, like, okay, but how's the finished product actually going to look? Like, how much creative freedom? is the smaller company even going to have with the property in the first place? Like, are they going to be able to kind of just do like something really ambitious and fun or is it just going to be like bogged down? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very rare thing when those collaborations actually like are wholly successful. Some of it can be, some of them can be fun to like some degree, but pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, but getting back to Nino Kuni, the team like at the time found it really difficult to animate the game's cell shade appearance and to match the aesthetic in game. And the overworld was designed to appear like a, a miniature diorama to match the game's kind of like nostalgic, childlike vibe, which I can kind of see with the perspective. I feel like games, there's there's games like Octopath Traveler who, and uh, what's that other one? A Fantasian, that one that's on Apple Arcade that have done yeah. the diorama thing much, much better, but they've also got an extra decade and a half or so. Exactly. So. So, <laughs> a little unfair. But yeah, despite mixed reviews, the game actually became one of the PS3's top-selling titles, and it's since become an ongoing franchise. It had a mobile follow-up, and in 2015, the console sequel Nino Kuni 2 Revenant Kingdom which lacked Ghibli's involvement was released. Yeah, even without Ghibli, I don't know. Have you played this game? I I actually like it quite a bit more. And I don't know if yeah. it's just because it reminds me, it sort of reminds me of a Tales game. And I really like Tales games. Exactly. And I and I feel like I feel like it kind of ties back with what we were just talking about. That I think because the two lacked Ghibli's involvement, I think they were really able to expand more and kind of do their more 
uh, uh, like their own thing on the lore and like improve way more on the gameplay and kind of just like really take the reins of this game. And you can see it. Yeah. Uh, they're not like pushed down as much. They're not kind of like uh, afraid to sort of like offend the larger collaborator. It's just like, okay, well, this is their property now. So now they can just really like do what's best for it in their in their view. And I do exactly. And I do. What's that? Oh, no, I'm sorry. sorry. I was just like, I do agree with you that I think it is it is better of the two. Yeah, and I think they at least had some ex-Ghibli people involved in the animated cutscenes and whatnot. They just didn't yeah. have the direct involvement. That's um, true. So yeah, do you want to uh, get into the gameplay and mechanics? Yeah, definitely. So uh, it's it's a pretty it's pretty basic JRPG gameplay elements. This top-down overworld, quest-based story structure, random battle and character encounters, this kind of thing. It's not it's not reinventing the wheel in that regard. The game's combat for its time was a bit more unique. It was an open 3D battlefield that can be freely roamed, although the combat was more turn-based instead of it being like like an action-based approach like other games such as Tail Series and Trix titles like Eternal Anata. So it, it had like a really, really interesting blend in that regard, which I liked because it did incorporate like in terms of the turn base, it did up the strategy a bit of having to like properly consider your actions before carrying them out. But then it added in the the, the, the strategic aspect of having to watch your your placement, like where your characters were standing in order to be able to properly like block and and dodge moves and things like that. So I really really like the blend overall. I yeah, the feel strategic like placement was very cool. It was, yeah, yeah. No, it was really really good. I think the obviously I think the game overall is like quite easy. So mm-hmm. it wasn't as like pushed to the limit, so to speak, as it could have been. But I I, I do still really like the the, the blend in gameplay. So during battles, players command a single human ally or one of the familiars accompanying them. Let's see. And of course, you you gain party members as you go along, but you can only control one of them at a time. And the other ones are then controlled by an AI. So so you're kind of dealing with that as well. The AI isn't actually that bad, I'll admit, but it it can, it is sometimes with, with almost any AI, (laughs) you can, you you can wrestle with them sometimes. So it's just kind of like, but so basically familiars are creatures that can be tamed similar in ways to Pokemon and they serve as like your party members. So they love, they can level up and evolve alongside the human characters 
and each familiar has unique statistics and capabilities and can be upgraded through the use of treats and equipped it with items. And the familiars, in my opinion, is one of the best parts of the gameplay. Like, I really enjoyed that aspect. I loved how, of course, each familiar had very different, like, movesets, specialties, things like that. And and you really had to consider which familiars to have on you, like, which ones to bring into battle. And, and honestly, having the right familiar is something that can really significantly battles, and especially boss battles. So that was a really important thing. And I think they, they ended up integrating that very well. So... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that was cool that I was doing my research and I I hadn't remembered is that the familiars are really kinda like like their theming is very based on like sort of the the natural environment in which that you find them and whatnot. Yeah. And they have a lot of personality as well. Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. And I really, really love them. And the designs are really great, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I really, I love that, that aspect so much. <laughs> but then again, I'm like, I'm such a big fan anyway of, like, fighting alongside, like, cute critters and stuff. So it's just like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're big fans of the 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 mon genre here <laughs> exactly <laughs> more 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 to the end of the devil mon <laughs> yeah <laughs> at least for me but, exactly <laughs> um, but yeah Well, Nino Cooney follows the story of Oliver, who's a resident of Motorville. It's got kind of like a modern day meets steampunk kind of vibe to it, which yeah. is very ghibli. <laughs> He's trying out a he tries out a new vehicle designed by his friend Philip, but almost drowns because he crashes and is saved by his mother Allie, who immediately after dies from heart problems. So hitting all the tropes real, real early here. <laughs> killing them all oh yeah <laughs> yeah as oliver cries his tears cause his doll which was a gift from his mother to come to life and reveal itself as a fairy named drippy who tells oliver that he is from another world where an evil wizard named shadar took control so what's, what's your opinion on drip so i always thought like he was a really messed up person it was like like you have this little kid whose mom just died his extremely traumatized and then he comes out of nowhere he's like oh so i can help you bring your mom back or we can find a way to do that 
but you have to help me first. So exactly <laughs> risk your life and almost die. And then maybe your mom will come back. But if you don't do it, I guess she just stays dead. All well. And so, of course <laughs> yeah. he's going to agree. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And he's kind of cute, but he's kind of annoying. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I had, like from the beginning, I was like, I have my eyes on you, Drip. I was expecting him to be like the main like villain. (laughs) That would have been great. That that would have that would have elevated. I think that would have elevated the game by like another like point. It would have. (laughs) It really would (laughs) have. So yeah, he tells Oliver that each person from his world has a soulmate, which is a person that shares a link with someone in Oliver's world. And his mother looks very much like a great sage, Alicia, who was captured by Shadar. So, <clears throat> realizing that Alicia must have been Ali's soulmate, Oliver sets out with Drippy to travel to the other world and rescue Alicia in the hopes that doing so will bring Ali back in his world. In the other world, Oliver finds a multitude of brokenhearted people affected by Shadar and uses his newfound magic abilities to restore those pieces of heart which they... And he also travels the world, of course, to seek out the four great sages who may be able to help in his quest. Along the way, he meets Esther, daughter of one of the great sages, and Swain, a thief who initially steals a crucial item from them, but ultimately decides to help out. So, as they enlist the sage's help, they learn of a wand known as Mornstar that can be used to defeat Shadar, but are at a loss of how to retrieve it, as it was recently destroyed by him. Soon after, they find themselves many years in the past by the actions of a stranger, and they're able to retrieve the wand there. So yeah, after they get the wand and uh, return to the present, they have to retrieve three magical stones to complete the wand. Upon doing this, Oliver learns that his mother, Allie, was in fact the great sage, Alicia. Shockers of all shockers. She basically realized that she couldn't defeat Shadar and that he basically, he destroyed his soulmate in the other world. So he couldn't be defeated in that way. Uh, so she travel. She so she chose to travel into both the future and into Oliver's world in the hopes of finding his next soulmate. Mm-hmm. After settling into this new world, she eventually ba- gave birth to her son Oliver, who unknowingly became Shadar's soulmate. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and so. Basically, Shadar is then taken down, and that's where we sort of learn about his past. Find out that he, he may not be the big bad villain of the whole game. Mm-hmm. So he was once a, a soldier who helped a young girl against orders, and whose hometown was destroyed to set an example. A being known as the White Witch called to him to embrace his despair and become the Dark Jinn Shadar. The spirit of Alicia talks to the dying Shadar, who realizes the girl he saved was young Alicia herself. Shadar then uses his power to sever the link between himself and Oliver to save Oliver from dying as well. 
With Shadar defeated, Oliver prepares to return home, but the White Witch appears and casts a spell known as Mana, an ash-like substance that turns all living beings in the three major cities into undead creatures. So then a girl named P, who's been appearing to Oliver on occasion, joins the group and she uses her magic to clear the cities of mana and restore the people to normal. The group proceeds to go and do battle with the White Witch and defeat her. Mm-hmm. And they discover that she was a young queen called Cassiopeia from thousands of years ago who had noble intentions but was manipulated by her Council of Twelve, calling themselves the Zodiarchs, who desired to run the country. So this game is like yeah, <laughs> one villain after another. Exactly. <laughs> like, like one big bad after another. Feeling powerless, she found and used the Monast Bell, believing it would bring peace and prosperity to her, to her people. When the horrific effects of the mana were revealed, she gradually witnessed the death of all of her subjects, including the council, and found herself on her own. So then she was gradually driven to despair and became the White Witch, believing that all life must be destroyed in an attempt to start over. Her power created an illusory version of the council to oversee the destruction of the world. The remains of her kind intentions also created P, the incarnation of her as a child, to help Oliver on his journey. P was sent to Motorville by the spirit of the Wizard King, his father, to give Oliver his starting wand and teach him Gateway so he could eventually save Cassiopeia and the slash White Witch from herself. Having been defeated, Cassiopeia fuses together with P and is restored to her former kind self. After assisting the group in destroying the Zodio Zodiarchy, uh, the, the Zodiarchy, last, yeah, the Zodiarchy. <laughs> it's like it's like the patriarchy, but but <laughs> 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 astro- the astrological patriarchy. I don't exactly. Know. <laughs> The last manifestations of the consul, Pia declares that she will dedicate her life to making amends for her actions, and Oliver bids farewell to his friends before returning to his old life in Motorville. Which, I mean, that's fair, but Motorville doesn't seem like a very interesting place to return to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it helps in this case that Oliver wasn't trying to escape his life. Like, he clearly was fine with how, where he lived in the first place. He just wanted his mom back. So I felt in this case it was more fitting. The ones I don't understand, of course, is when, like, you know, you have kids who are treated poorly in their old world, and then they go to this great new world, and then they go back to the old world. Like, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's not the case here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He he just was able to get his old life back. So I was like, well, that's good. I'm glad that he gets his normalcy that he wanted. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so that's pretty much the entirety of Nino Kuni, Wrath of the White Witch. Do you have any like final thoughts or impressions to wrap up? I feel like we've kind of dropped in a lot of our thoughts along the way, but I don't know if there's anything <laughs> that comes to mind. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think we've pretty much said most of it. I guess, like, on the twist, I mean, I it, I thought they were interesting. I it, Like, you were kind of joking, it did get a little ridiculous after a while, kind of like, well, wow, who's actually the big villain? <laughs> I was like, I was kind of waiting for, like, it to turn out to be, like, a, a super evil person behind the Zodiacs controlling them. <laughs> I did. I, I liked. I really liked the Zodiacs twist. I dug that that there was this kind of like Council of Twelve evil, because the the traditional thing would be here are all your like mini bosses or whatever mini evils, mm-hmm. and then there's one big evil behind it. And in oh, this true. case, it was a cool. It's a cool inversion to be like. No, there's this like evil council who's like involved in this like conspiracy to, you know, yeah, control the world, basically, to control the world, whatnot. And so I dug that as like a pretty cool little uh, like inversion of that sort of JRPG trope. Yeah, I mean, I think that the game. I really wish that when they had remastered it. They had added a little bit more kind of quality of life elements, but I think that at this point you can get the remastered version on just about anything and it runs great. And I, I can't imagine it's more than like 15 bucks. And if you're looking for a pretty, like just like pleasant, enjoyable JRPG, that you can like I, I feel like the switch is like the perfect system for this game that's like, true something you can like i just kind of plug away and grind in and whatnot on the on the bus or on the train or whatever and then also have like you know a road story in a lot of ways but also a game ca- game with characters with a lot of charm definitely and some really beautiful animation courtesy of yeah. Studio Ghibli. I, I definitely think it's worth playing. And it's not a particularly long game by JRPG standards. I think what, it's like maybe 25, 30 hours. Yeah, I would say just about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, just just because I, I forgot to mention this before, but there is a difference between the ports. The S4 and the PC ports, that's the one that gives you the options to like enhance the visuals or like frame rate. So there's like basically, yeah, basically there's two, there's two like modes you can play them in. So there's like a 4k, there's a mode for like 4k resolution at 30 frames per second or 1440p at 60 frames. Meanwhile, the, meanwhile, the switch is a traditional port that runs at like 720p resolution and 30 frames per second. So while I do think that the Switch is a, is a great way to experience the game, like for all the reasons you pointed out, if you're if if you're someone who kind of really wants like that 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 the, the higher resolution and like the faster frame rate, then PC or PS4 would probably be your best bets. Yeah, um, oh. if you if you if you need your JRPGs to be in 60 FPS, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I meant to say PS4 Pro. Has the yeah. option for those two modes, not PS4. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, PS4, PS4 Pro and PC. Well, the PS4 base version is 1080p and 60 frames per second. So yeah, it still stands that if you want like the higher stuff, those two would be better versus if you just want to be able to 
play this game on the go, then Switch is obviously your better choice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, should we uh, wrap it up with uh, some uh, some plugs? You got some uh, new s- outlets you're writing for and stuff. Yep, yep. I've been I've been switching around a bit, but I'm I think I'm settled. <laughs> I was experimenting, but yeah. So currently, I write for two sites. I mainly write for Tech Radar right now, which is a tech site overall. So that deals with like PC components and tech industry news and things like that. So definitely check that out if you want some really cool in-depth information on that part of the industry. I also write for Tech Raptor, which is kind of where it's going to be my base for like more long form pieces. So my features and in the future, like previews and reviews and things like that, as well as like guides and whatnot. So definitely keep an eye out for for that. And if you just generally want to keep track of what I'm doing or chat with me. My Twitter handle is ajames347. I, I pretty much post like all of my major stuff on there and, and whatnot. And like I said, you can, you can talk to me about JRPGs or anything like that. So yeah, thank you so much for listening and yeah, we will be back with back with you soon. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like take care everybody and I hope you're doing well. <laughs>